Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Have you ever wondered what it takes to set up a winning sports team? What's needed to increase the chances of winning championships at the highest levels in the world? And are there definable practices that are helpful to making that happen? I am profoundly grateful to discuss these and other topics with an NBA coach who both as a player and as a coach has been a champion more times than just about anyone in the world of sports. Steve Kerr had a brilliant career as a player in the NBA, helping his teams win five NBA titles. At 45.4%, he still holds the record for the highest three-point scoring percentage in the history of professional basketball. He went on to coach the Golden State Warriors and bring them to the NBA Finals five out of six seasons, winning three times. His players and NBA fans love him and he is widely respected both inside and outside basketball. Steve is a man who deeply introspects and reflects on all types of topics, including on how to bring out the best in people. Steve has also found ways to win that have implications way beyond the world of sports. In this compelling interview, you'll hear his winning formulas that could be applied to education, business, and other non-sports pursuits. So listen in as I speak with Steve from his home and we do a deep dive into winning through Steve's core values of competition, compassion, joy, and mindfulness. Coach Steve Kerr, who has invited me to call him Steve, welcome to Super Psyched. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Good to be with you. Well, the first question I have for you is what do you love most about being a coach? Tough question. There's a lot of things I, I really love about it. I love to compete. I love competing as a group. So, you know, to have a goal every day with a group of people and to prepare to try to achieve that goal, it's, it's fun. And then, you know, you sort of have these daily goals that lead to bigger goals. And of course, the biggest goal of all is to, you know, win a championship, which is only attainable in, you know, certain special years. But I suppose uh, what I like the most about it is just the, the fact that you're doing it as a group and you got to a whole group of people and and your job as a coach is to try to get everybody on the same page and shooting for the same goal so it's fun yeah you mentioned getting everybody on the same page and it seems that you've done a really masterful job at that i've heard that you really prioritize creating a vibe creating a culture within your team that that is of foremost importance i'm wondering what is the culture you try to create and how do you go about doing that well, I think you hear that word a lot, you know, in, in business and sports, you know, culture, what it means. And people get a job and they say, well, we got to build a culture. Right. Okay. Then what? <laughs> <laughs> so I think uh, to me, what it means is what do you feel? What does a player feel when he enters the gym every day? You know, from the time he enters to the time he leaves, what's the atmosphere? What's the vibe? What's his experience? And so I think... The way you build it is through authenticity and through a set of principles, a set of guiding values that you have as a coach. You have to know what those are 
as a coach. You have to figure out who you are and what you're trying to impart upon your players. And then you have to figure out how to make those values come alive each day. When they come alive through just the structure of each day and through the experience each day that the players have, that's the culture. That's what they go home remembering and thinking about. And then they look forward to the next day. For example, if one of your values is competition, then you got to compete at practice. You got to keep score. You know, you've got to put guys in positions where there's a scoreboard, there's standings, there's, you know, and generally speaking, athletes love to compete, you know, at this level, they wouldn't get this far if they didn't. But making sure that your daily ritual matches whatever those values are that you've decided upon is really, really the key. Love that. So authenticity, aliveness, vitality, enthusiasm, competition, which is kind of the common thread, despite the variances of backgrounds, abilities, everyone on the team is competitive. And so you leverage that and the vibe that you try to create, the culture you try to create imbues all of that. And I'm wondering how you reinforce that with a ritual. Yeah, well, I think, you know, like any group, you sort of develop some rituals without even uh, (laughs) knowing it, you know, just because we're human beings, we have habits. You know, what we do, and some of it is intentional and some of it's not, but what we do with the Warriors, something that I learned with the Bulls when I played for Phil Jackson, we meet before practice every day. We sit down and generally we'll watch some tape, some film of the game the night before, or a practice, or an opponent, you know, the next day that we're playing against. There's, there's usually some basketball component to it, but it's mostly about the communal gathering. And mm-hmm. so by sitting down every single day, it initiates conversation and it allows you as a coach to address anything that needs addressed without you know, calling a team meeting, which is sort of the dreaded meeting as, as a player. You don't, nobody wants to go to a meeting, you know. But if it's part of your daily routine that you're sitting down in a room together, it allows you to address anything. And, and it also allows you to celebrate individual accomplishments. It allows you to talk about current events. It allows you to bring in a guest speaker. It allows you to do anything you want. And that's what Phil Jackson did with the Bulls. That's what I learned from him. And so that's how we start our day out every day. I think it was brilliant. And it seems almost as though, you know, I know Phil Jackson was really into Native American traditions. It's as if you're trying to create a tribe or even a family. And I listened to your fantastic podcast with Pete Carroll, where you brought in Brene Brown and appear to really value the idea of vulnerability and safety. I was wondering if you could speak to how that might even vulnerability and safety within the context of team might be one of the secrets to your success? Yeah, so you want players to talk, you know, because they're the ones who are out on the floor and uh, they're the ones who are really either winning or losing the game. You know, they, they're the ones doing all the work out there. And so what, what our job is as coaches is to help them get the most out of their ability and, and then to get them to play together, to succeed together. And so one of the ways... You do that is by breaking down some of the natural barriers that exist, some insecurities that we all have as human beings. Most players have strengths and weaknesses, like all human beings, right? 
unless you're Michael Jordan or LeBron. (laughs) Most players just have some things they do really well and some things that they could do better. And to get the group talking about what those are, both individually and as a team, and then figure out how are we going to make up for that? How are we going to cover up those things without offending anybody is a trick. It's challenging because... It's a tight balance. Yeah. And you got a, a bunch of alphas in there and nobody <laughs> wants to admit they're wrong. And, and it's a, there's a lot of pressure. You know, you get booed, you get criticized, you get traded, you get caught. Being a professional athlete it can be really difficult. It's you know, a great job, but it's also... It has its moments where it can be difficult. So got to factor all these things in. And then you just try to create an atmosphere where there's a comfort level in the communication that allows for that, that vulnerability. Yeah. And it seems that organizations that have that within their culture seem to really thrive. At least that's been my experience with organizational psychology. And you seem to have leveraged that really well. You mentioned something about dealing with negativity. And you're in the spotlight. You've had to deal with all kinds of stuff. You've had haters, critics, and you've dealt with all types of jeering throughout your career in spite of being the rock star. You are, these things show up. And I'm wondering, how do you deal with that when that stuff shows up? Yeah, I mean, it's no fun. There's nobody really likes that. There's a lot more of that today because there's easier access for people to reach you. You know, if you are on social media and you look at your phone, it's right there. And, you know, and our players are, they're all on it, you know, all day. And it's just, you know, the generation that's grown up with the phone in their hands, it's hard to avoid anything like that. When I played, it was a lot easier to avoid. We didn't have the, the phones, but we didn't have the social media. So it was really just trying to avoid the mass media, you know, the, you just not turn your TV on, not turn your car radio on and you could avoid it all day long. It was easy. So it's a lot harder today. And, and so we talk about that as a team. We try to put it in context, you know, just imagine who these critics are, Right. <laughs> you know, I have this thought of somehow <laughs> bringing in like two or three of the trolls, you know, the haters right in front of the group. <laughs> And I know what would happen is the uh, <laughs> three guys we brought in would be like, oh my God, I, <laughs> how could I ever have said anything bad about these guys? And then our players would look at those guys and they'd go, why do I care what these guys said about? You know, it's just, but it's human nature. You see a written word and you see, you see something bad about yourself. We all totally. tense up and want to respond and, Unfortunately, that's a, a huge part of modern life. So we try to use humor to diffuse it and constantly remind the guys that the only people that matter are really in this room and in your house. That's brilliant. And I think that you use humor very well. You seem to have this kind of balance between humor and, and seriousness. You're really, and you leverage a lot of your emotional intelligence. You're willing to get angry when it's time to be angry. And I'm just wondering, how has psychology played a part just kind of knowing your emotional states allowed you to be at your best? Yeah, it's really a, a fine line. There's this balance that I'm trying to walk all the time for the team, but it's an authentic one yeah. um, because that's how I feel. When I, when I played sports, I, I, it was this sort of seesaw between uh, joy and competitive 
fire, you know, and how do those two things coexist? And those are two of our four values as a team that we have are competition and, and joy. And uh, the other two are compassion and mindfulness. And so if you think about those four things separately, they don't necessarily go together. You wouldn't think anyway. It's but interesting. Yeah. It for me, like they do. For me, they do. Because that, that's, I mean, those, those are values that are based on my personality and who I am and how I've kind of view the, the job and the world. And, and so those are the values that I'm constantly trying to preach, but there's a, you know, there's a balance in there that you have to reach. Uh, you know, ostensibly it seems counterintuitive that these four ideas of competition, joy, compassion, and mindfulness would go together. And yet to me as a psychologist, they seem actually perfect and complete. <laughs> So that's uh, good. <laughs> I've got your approval. <laughs> totally, man. You got my approval hardcore. How did you come to recognize? I mean, a lot of times people have difficulty actually rendering these deep seated truths about themselves. Like you realized, okay, this is my algorithm, this is my formula for success. How did you come to that realization that those were the four? Pete Carroll helped me find them. And basically, I, I went up to visit him in Seattle. I had always admired him as a coach and I wanted to watch him at work. And so went up there. I was I got an invitation through a mutual friend. And I was there for about three days and watched him behind the scenes and was on the field, you know, with them practicing and in his office, sharing ideas. And, and he was great. And he really explained this concept to me. And when he talked about it, I immediately recognized what he was talking about because I had witnessed it in San Antonio and in Chicago in particular with uh, Greg Popovich, and Phil Jackson, you know, this idea of, of culture and a values-based organization and, and how that can all come alive. So I, I knew what he was speaking of, but nobody had ever sort of verbalized it to me before. And uh, so the way he put it was, you know, if you're going to, you're going to coach, you got to figure out what's important to you, not to me, not to Bill Jackson or Greg Popovich, you know, to you, you know, you personally, what's it based on your own life, how you were raised, you know, what you experienced. And he said, go home and, and think about that, you know, go back to your hotel and think about what are some really important values that you hold true. And so I did. And then when I came in the next day, we, we narrowed those down and that became sort of my kind of guiding light as I, you know, built my vision for you know, how we were going to play that year and what, what we were going to do in practice and how we were going to build the organization. Yeah. It seems that a really big part of your success really goes back to that authenticity and really tapping into who you are, not trying to be Phil Jackson, who was amazing or Greg Popovich. You're being Steve Kerr. And those were the four that came to you and you had no compunctions about using them because they were real. Right. Right. And that's the key. I, I didn't make anything up. You know, I, I legitimately went back and, and thought to myself, you know, in my hotel and I really gave it a lot of thought for a couple of hours. I thought about my whole life and what was important to me and why I was the way I was. And then, yeah, it, so it, it was a really healthy exercise. I had never done that before, you know, to really examine my own psyche, you know, and, and mm -hmm. including and, your past. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it was revealing. Yeah. And let's talk about that for a second. You have been the beneficiary of having really great parents and, you know, may your father's memory be a blessing. And you grew up <laughs> in a storied fashion in Lebanon and Cairo, Egypt and Los Angeles and a whole host of places that really, I imagine, kind of created a mosaic of, of a past for you that gave you just a lot of reference points as you went along your path. Mm-hmm. And I wonder about your parents, like they are teachers or your mom is a teacher and your dad was. What have they taught you that kind of helped you become the coach you are? Yeah, I think just the atmosphere that they created in our house, you know, was really productive and allowed us to really do what we wanted to do. You know, I was a little bit the black sheep being the athlete in the, mm-hmm. among the kids. And, and my older brother was also an athlete, but both he and my sister became academics and they both have their PhDs. And I was never really that interested in school. I was a decent student, but not a great student. But I was really into sports and really into basketball. And my, my parents recognized that. So they encouraged it. They made sure I did my homework too. But I don't know. I just think the experience that they provided and the support they provided and the, the way we lived, we all felt like we could do anything, like anything was possible. That's Fantastic. They saw who you were and they championed you to be who you were, not who necessarily what the family culture right. had. That was, mm-hmm. sounds like that was really, really important in your development. If we can go there for a second, you lost your father in a really bad way. And I'm wondering, a lot of people who are listening have gone through all types of grief, sadness. What did you find most useful in terms of going through that traumatic and grief-laden process? I think um, turning to the things that you know brought me a lot of joy was really the main thing. You know, so mainly my you know my family just we supported each other and kind of turned inward to towards each other, and, and then for me. I was in college, so playing my college basketball and really committing myself to getting better and to working at something that I loved and gave my my daily routine a real a goal and a pattern. And so I was able to kind of lean on on that to you know to keep going. So finding meaning and challenge in the face of mm-hmm. tragedy really made the difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just phenomenal. Kind of a big pivot here, but I'm wondering, how do you feed your brain? Like what music, what books, what other sources allow your brain to function at its highest level? Yeah, especially during the uh, pandemic, a lot of books, a lot of podcasts <laughs> mm-hmm. and some music. But I think because there were no sports on TV for a while, I just naturally started reading a lot. And at first it was weird because I was, you know, my routine for ever has been to turn a game on at night, you know, you know, in the basketball season or not. It's part of my routine. I like to cook a lot. So, you know, my routine in the past has been, you know, start cooking dinner and turn a game on. And that would sort of capture my interest. And so, you know, when that went out the window, it changed everybody's routine. Obviously, we had to be in indoors more and and uh, at home more 
And I started reading a lot of books that I, was, I had been interested in that had been sitting on my shelf. And, and then I think uh, when the social unrest began after the George Floyd murder, I started reading a lot of books that were dealt with race and race relations. And so I've read a lot of interesting stuff and everything applies to coaching. I mean, that's the beauty of being a coach or, or a teacher. No matter what you read, you just pick things up that applies to what you're doing. And so I've, I've actually enjoyed it. I got used to not watching sports and, you know, living in California, the weather's nice. So I've been outside, sitting outdoors, reading a book quite a bit. It's, and it's been great. Awesome. Yeah. And I agree with you wholly. Just even as a psychologist, everything applies to psychology. It doesn't matter what I read. It it relates and there's just a way to channel that information. Yeah. All roads seem to lead to that space of doing well. And I've noticed that sports psychology really applies to just about every facet of life. I know you are a big fan of Tim Galway's book and that you would even read it twice per season. And I'm wondering about sports psychology. Have you kind of spent a lot of time with that? And has that informed you as a coach? I needed it as an athlete. I needed to study sports psychology and I needed help as an athlete, whether it was reading Tim Galway's book, which was like my Bible. And the reason I would read it every year was just to get out of my own way. You know, I just needed to stop thinking and to to start playing, you know, and Mm -hmm. and I had a tendency to overthink. And I love that book for that reason. It, It really cuts right to the core of doing what we were all trying to do, which is just connect your mind and body and find that freedom that comes from removing the clutter, you know, and when you're competing, when you're playing, when you're living. So, you know, being in the NBA, most teams had access to a sports psychologist. So I I learned about visualization, did some of that as a routine. Phil Jackson was great introducing me to uh, meditation and uh, mindfulness training. I had never had a coach who had done that before. So that was really interesting. So yeah, I mean, it all, it all ties together. And I think the, the higher you, you go as an athlete, the uh, bigger the stakes, the more pressure there is, and the more likelihood that, you know, you, your brain might get in your way. And uh, so you got you to gotta navigate all that. Yeah, it's really at the highest level to access your prefrontal cortex or the higher cortical functionings in the face of stress. Generally, the cortisol increases. We're more living in our amygdala, which is our fear and anger-based center. And it sounds like mindfulness is just the perfect antidote to that. And I'm wondering, in the midst of a high-pressure game, what do you do to stay mindful, focused, and present so that you can access the best part of your brain and be the best coach you can be during those high-pressured situations? I think it's easier for me as a coach than it was as a player, because as a coach, you're not actually doing, you know, you're seeing, and it's right there, and you're communicating with your coaches next to you. And so the communication allows for some clarity, you know, and, and so we're constantly talking on the bench. There's four coaches on the front of the bench and, you know, four more behind the bench. But the guys on the front of the bench are constantly communicating with, you know, what's happening 
we're analyzing, we're discussing possible moves, you know, and, and one coach is really dedicated to offense. One coach is dedicated to defense. And so there's these strategic sessions are happening, you know, in real time. And I don't feel a ton of pressure, really. Hmm. It's more, I'm just locked in on what I'm doing. And I'm trying to keep the players from feeling pressure because they're the ones who are actually doing. And so when I played, there were times when I really felt that pressure, you know, and I could feel the stress getting in the way of my performance. And that's, so as a player, I had a lot of breathing, you know, I would really focus on my breath and try to calm my, my nerves and clear my mind. And, and then I had a few tricks that I, that I did that I picked up along the way, just, you know, I might write a message on my shoe or, you know, something or, you know, just like something to remind me to just, you know, let it go, to not give in to any sort of impeding thought or, or pressure that is constantly out there. Yeah. So you just figure it out. I'm a huge fan of pithy aphorisms that you can just say in the midst of stress to just remind you to stay focused, almost like having an Obi-Wan Kenobi in your brain saying, you know, just trust the force. Right. Um, but I'm wondering, like, what are some of yours that you go to so that you can really just... <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a good story about this. There was one year in Chicago where I had a bad stretch of games and I was just in my own head, you know, and, and literally every time I was catching the ball, you know, I was thinking about it instead of just shooting it. You know, I knew I was going to be open. And as I was catching it, I was like, I got to make it. I got to make it. I got to make it. And you can't make a shot that way. You know, it has to be free flowing. And that's why I love Steph Curry so much. Like I guarantee you that thought has never entered his mind, you know, totally from a viewer. I would agree. Yeah. I mean, it's all flow and he finds this beautiful flow. You know, he, he doesn't allow that sort of impediment, but you know, a lot of players do. Because they're, you know, you start thinking about the consequences, the results, the repercussions. Um, if you miss, if you know, you don't want to be the goat, you know, missing a big shot. The goat used to mean. <laughs> I know what you mean. You know, it used to mean the bad guy. Now it means the greatest of all time. Greatest of all time. So, <laughs> you know, you don't want to be the bad. Guy. <laughs> you don't want to be that goat. Yeah, and a lot of players, more players, feel that than are willing to admit it. You know. But it was something that I had to get over. And so one time I was just literally angry with myself after a game. It's like three straight games where I'm just overthinking everything. And I said, uh, I said, you know what? Fuck it. This is ridiculous. Fuck it. I just got to let it fly. I just got to get out of my own way. So the next game I wrote the letters F-I on my shoe for fuck it. Right. <laughs> so. And it worked. It worked. It, it, you know, I, during the game, a couple of times I started to think, I looked at my shoe, I'm like, hey, and my mentality was that game was just go for it, you know, get, get over the hump because the season, a lo- it's a long season in the NBA, you know, and if you can get out of a little rut, you're more likely to stay out of it for a while. And so you're kind of, you know, going up and down. And so that helped me get out of a rut. And then I went on a nice streak and I forgot about my, you know, overthinking and everything. So years later, a guy named Chris Ballard, who's a journalist for Sports Illustrated, and he wrote a book about basketball. And each chapter was dedicated to one skill in the game. And the shooting chapter featured me. 
So then it dealt with form and thought process, all that stuff. So I told him that story about the FI on the shoe. And the book did really well, especially among coaches and teams and doing television at the time. I had long since retired and I'm doing television, I'm doing a college game. And I had a coach come up to me and say, hey, I want you to know I read your book, uh, Chris Ballard's book and uh, the, the book that you were featured in shooting. And three of our guys have written FI on their shoes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And then, and then the, like a couple days later, the NCAA tournament's going on. There's a full page picture or the front page of the sports page. I think it was USA Today. It's a big picture of this college guy going up and he's laying it in. And I kind of look oh, at his shoe and there's a giant FI. This was a totally <laughs> different, different team. And I ended up covering that team, you know, two weeks later. And I asked the assistant coach, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He read it too. And so I laughed. I was like, oh, my God, the biggest impact I've made on the game is teaching players to put profanity on their shoes to, you know, to get, to get over their insecurities. Like, okay, I've really, I've really done it. <laughs> that is so awesome. So that might be the title of your sports psychology book, just FI. FI. That's, that's so point. great. And I, we're kind of brothers in this way because my acronym is FIP, F-I-P, feel, identify, and process to gain greater sense of your emotional intelligence. So F and I are in my little algorithm. Yours, yours aren't quite as vulgar though. So that's good. Uh, you know, I'm a, hu- I'm a huge fan of vulgarity and there seems to be some correlation between one's willingness to swear and one's authenticity. Uh, there seem to be some studies on that. So well, I, I endorse FI a hundred percent, man. Confirms my authenticity. <laughs> totally. I think that's awesome. And it worked. And you also described a, a really big idea on the tennis episode where you emulated Jeff Hornacek. I'm a real big fan of kind of stepping outside yourself so you aren't in that thinking mode. And you seem to find that to be really useful. Yeah, that was uh, straight out of Tim Galloway, Inner Game of Tennis. So that was one of the things that I took from that book, which, and and I've actually given that advice to a lot of our young players in Golden State to sometimes just pretend you're somebody else, get out of your own body, so in Galway's case, he was a tennis instructor, not teaching pros, just teaching amateurs. And he said that he had a player who was really struggling and lost some confidence. And he just told the player, he said, you know, today, just when you go out there, just pretend you're the best tennis player in the world. I can't remember who the player was at the time. Maybe it was John McEnroe or Bjorn Borg. You know, I think this was the early 80s or something. And, and when he wrote the book, maybe even late 70s. When I read that chapter, it, was, it made perfect sense to sort of step outside your, the confines of your own body and mind and step into somebody else's because all of a sudden, your imagination can grow a little bit. You can think about doing things you wouldn't in your own body, your vision of your own limitations. You know, I always had a few players who I watched carefully in the NBA peers who, who I admired, who I knew, you know, I could at least emulate and come close to, you know, copying. Mm-hmm. And Jeff Hornacek was one of them. So I pretended I was him and one day in practice, had the best practice of my year. And I thought, my God, 
how pathetic I had to pretend to be somebody else to bring the best out of myself, but whatever it takes. <laughs> totally. And imagination is such a big deal. It really allows us to raise the bar. Yeah. I mean, imagination, I think, was probably the precursor for all great things. And somehow yeah. something about Jeff Hornacek really resonated with you. Like, this is a guy I could be like and who might up my game and by embracing yeah. it. And, and I see it today. You know, you can see it if you're, a, if you're a basketball fan and you watch the game from a big picture standpoint. You can see that every player impacts a whole generation, you know. Totally. And so players are doing it unwittingly in many cases. You know, Steph Curry was shooting some of those step back threes before anybody, you know. And, and so when you see Trey Young for Atlanta shooting, you know, a step back 35 footer, it's pretty obvious he watched Steph Curry and was inspired. And so, you know, players have been doing that forever. Allen Iverson, I think, impacted the, the way the whole game is played, the way players handle the ball. He had a move that was really unique. Now every player handles the ball that way. James Harden mastered a sort of sidestep move that had never been done before that now half the players in the league are doing. So players are doing it all over the place, um, and people do it, right? Imitation, I mean, that's... Uh, it makes sense. Somebody's doing something great. I want to do that. You know? Totally. Social psychology, the four minute mile, as soon as somebody broke that, a whole bunch of other people did. Yeah. yeah. That's right. And that's that's right. how that works. But we are social creatures like that. Yeah. You know, I'm wondering, here you are, the coach of these amazing like titans who've seen it all, done it all. They're veterans and you need to inspire them. In light of the fact that they've seen it all and done it all, how do you actually do that? How do you inspire these guys? You know, well, the NBA season is, it's interesting. It's a long haul. You know, it's 82 games plus, you know, five or six exhibition games. If you're good enough to go to the playoffs, play a bunch of playoff games, you know, for five straight years, we played over a hundred games. <laughs> so you don't motivate people with the, you know, Newt Rockney speech every game. It would get old by the fourth game, you know. So I think you appeal to whatever you feel makes that player tick. You get to know each player. You know, I think that's a big part of coaching, especially basketball, because there's you know, 15 guys on your team. So you can get to know everybody really well. Probably really hard in football when you got 60 guys. But uh, 15 players, you can get to know players and, and get to know, you know what makes them tick. So getting to know each of their set of individual circumstances is really important. So, you know, for Steph Curry, he's now in a place where he's, he's already a Hall of Fame player. So what motivates Steph is going to be very different from the 15th guy on the roster who has, hasn't really made it in the NBA. So, you know, that guy's goal is to make the league and to just make the team so that he can earn some money and take care of his family. and hopefully build a, a longer career. And, and then, you know, there, there's 15 of those. And so I think you know, figuring out what's important to each guy individually, and then really giving the team a vision of what's important to us, you know, what, what's, what's possible for the group. That's, I think that's what I try to do. Totally. It sounds like you're attuned to what I refer to as the platinum rule rather than just the golden rule. The golden rule is just do unto others as you'd want done unto you. 
the platinum rule is do unto others as they want done because you know them that well. <laughs> and it sounds like each person gets a different version of what you're able to provide. And you know them so intimately that you're able to voice it, message it in a way that really resonates with them personally, not just some Hallmark reading card that just kind of like says, right. mm, whatever. I mean, that's the goal. That's the goal. And if you coach a group long enough, you can achieve quite a bit of that. And that's powerful. That's really powerful because everybody has you know, individual goals they're trying to reach. And I think if players know that their coaching staff is really invested in their careers, in helping them have the best possible career, and not just, you know, you're here to help me win a game. Totally. You know, it's got to be about the player and the player's development and the player's career. And, and if they feel that, then it's going to be a productive environment. Absolutely. I know you've learned a lot from a lot of different sources, including, of course, your big mentors. Popovich and certainly Phil Jackson. And now as a coach, you have the opportunity to learn from players as a coach. And I'm wondering, what have you learned from your players? What are some of the things that people might benefit from knowing? I'll just give the context. I mean, here you are, everybody knows you've made it to the finals five out of six times. Ostensibly, this is a guy who knows it all. And yet you appear to embrace what I kind of, you probably are familiar with the beginner's mind, just this willingness mm -hmm. to learn. Yeah. And yeah intuit that you learn a lot from your players, but what are some yeah, of the key sure. takeaways that have maybe blown you away that you've learned? Maybe one or two things that you've learned from players that, that the listeners might benefit from knowing about, not just your willingness to learn, but yeah. the fact that you did learn that. Sure, sure. Well, one for sure would be learning more about um, life as a Black American. Mm. You know, not just in the last few months, but, you know, over the years, um, I've had a lot of really interesting conversations with, uh, with players, um, guys like Andre Iguodala, David West, Sean Livingston, really interesting guys who um, would engage with me in talking about politics or history or, um, you know, maybe a book that they had read. So when you're coaching and you get to know someone invariably you're going to learn about them and you're going to learn about life you're going to learn things that, that you wouldn't know because you're not in their shoes and so as a white coach in a predominantly black sport there's there's a lot to to be learned you know what what life is like for you and your family compared to the life that I grew up with totally different so you know that's one of the benefits i think of being in a, in a sport like this, you learn so much from your players. I think it's fantastic. And you appear to have a real love of learning. And uh, that is one of the 24 virtues that has been identified by a kind of a large section of social scientists as being a virtue to really rock if you can. And uh, you seem to really love the learning mm. process, which I imagine has been a key to your success. I do. I, and I appreciate that. But I, now I need the other 23. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Yeah, it turns out that you get the biggest return on your investment of energy if you just rock your top five and just rock right. the living hell out of them. <laughs> Want to check it out? It's really cool. It's, uh, yeah, I would love to. It's out of University of Pennsylvania. It's, uh, I believe it's VIA character as in values in action character.org. Mm. And it's a 20 minute assessment. It's really cool. Great. 
professional athletes are often superstitious. And I was wondering, you know, have you noticed superstition as having an impact on yourself or on others? Not for me. I'm not the slightest bit superstitious, but there's a lot of, uh, a lot of athletes who I've played with or coached who just are very, very specific in terms of the way they prepare for games. And they've got to repeat the pattern over and over again. And maybe that's not always the same thing, being superstitious and being uh, pattern oriented. But most players, as they go in the NBA, they develop a really specific pregame routine that they follow religiously. Steve, as we close, I'm wondering, as people carry you in their minds, what impact do you hope to have? Well, I think as it relates to coaching, I think that I like where coaching is heading. You know, I I think the old way of coaching, kind of the, you know, the old school, my, my way or the highway, you know, Bobby Knight, I'm going to scream and yell at you. You know, that's, that's really fading and mostly gone. And I think that's good. I think there's a better way. And I think there's a lot of great coaches out there now who are proving that. But I think that's what I would like is I'd like for, you know, the next generation of athletes to be able to find a really, really healthy, productive, fun environment in which to pursue his or her sport. I think that's what's happening right now it's around sports. I think people are figuring out this whole dynamic of success you know, within a team can coexist with joy and, and entertainment and fun. And, and, but finding the balance is kind of the key to, to that. And that's what we always strive for every year with our staff and with the Warriors. I know as an athlete growing up, that's, I would have loved that mm. environment. Mm. And then I, I eventually, you know, basically found that environment with, with a couple of, you know, Hall of Fame coaches, Phil Jackson, Greg Popovich. Maybe not exactly that environment, but very close. And so I think that's what I think about is that the impact that our team, the Warriors, can have is, you know, possibly initiating, you know, an even bigger push to pursue that kind of culture in a team environment. You know, I wonder, just as a really, really final question, do you hope on some level that the culture that you've created, which seems like it's the byproduct, at least in part of the culture you wish you had as a kid, do you hope that it might even transcend the Warriors and go into industry or into society at large? Yeah, and I think it can. It's always interesting to think about that because it really depends on the business you're in and what what the circumstances are. But yeah, any gathering of people to try to accomplish something is basically the same thing. You know, you have the same needs, you know, for communication and organization and you need to seek, you know, a common goal, but you want individuals to succeed. So that exists everywhere, whether it's in a classroom or a musical group or business. So yeah, I think that that's an interesting thought. You know, can it transcend sports, that, that type of culture? I think that's, that's interesting. I believe it can. And a chief complaint I experienced as a psychologist in Silicon Valley is the absence of the culture that you've created 
So if you ever decide to write a book on that, you've got at least two books. You've got FI and perhaps, you know, what I've learned from creating, you know, culture with the warriors because you've already got the evidence. This is evidence-based. I love it. Well, thank you. Thanks for the compliment. Steve, I can't thank you enough for taking time to meet with me and sharing your wisdom with my audience. Thank you, Adam. I really enjoyed it. Right on, man. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.